Well, good morning. Good morning. Um, it's been a little while since I've been here, um, so it's been it's good to be back. And I apologize for any of you that I had to ask your name again. Um, um, and I think I've what, what was that? <laughs> um, I, I think I've said this every single time I've been here, but it, ha- it really does happen every single time I've been here. Um, sitting in Sunday school, and there were like three different things that we talked about. We were talking about Nehemiah, and so that's not anywhere near where we're at in Scripture with the sermon series that I've been trying to carry as I come in Philippians. But um, <clears throat> talking about the rebuilding of the wall, and they were talking, there was stuff brought up about sacrificing for the Lord and the good of the community. Um, there was a discussion about, um, um, well, one person actually quoted one of the scriptures that's in my text today, and we were talking about, um, you know, putting others before, before ourselves and that kind of stuff. And so I'm sitting in there, and I'm thinking, man, like, I should just be recording this and then replay it for you guys, because we, we touched on a lot of stuff that we're going to talk about today. Um, this, we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 2, uh, the first four verses, um, so you can find your place in Scripture. And I just want to say a couple things about it before we read it. Um, the first time I ever preached through Philippians, um, I, I did chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 which is a a lengthy text, Um, and I kind of skipped over, I mean, I, we touched base on the first four verses, but that wasn't what I was wanting to focus on. I was wanting to focus on 5 through 11, where it talks about Christ's sacrifice for us, Um, but I decided to, this time around, as I was studying again, I decided to um, shorten it and focus on the first four verses, because um, I actually as I was running through things this morning, I was thinking, you know, these four verses, and especially verse three is what we're really going to look at today. Verse three alone could probably be at least three sermons. And so it is just packed full of stuff. And, and so I'm going to cover, I'm going to cover those first four verses today, but it actually sets up all of the rest of chapter two, and I think the first half of, ch- of chapter three as well. And verse verse 3 is kind of that central verse for the rest, for that next chapter and a half that Paul is getting ready to write to them. I want to give you some quick background, uh, just a reminder of what we are coming out of in chapter 1, and then we will pick right up into our text for today. But the end of chapter 1, Paul is reminding them, and, and I want to bring this up too because this is a letter, and so when the people were reading it, there weren't chapter and verse divisions, and so we tend to get to the end of a chapter and we cut our, our study time off there or our lesson or our sermon, whatever it might be, but they would have gotten up and just read this straight through. And so chapter one flows right into chapter two at, with Paul's thoughts. And he, at the end of chapter one, is saying, okay, so you're going to, you're going to, um, you're going to suffer at times for the gospel. Uh, he he, told, he, get, he said that God has given you, and I called it, when I was here last time, I called it a grace gift. The get, it's been granted to you, this is verse 29 of, of chapter 1, it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. And Paul is driving home the need for unity in the, in the body of Christ. Goes right into our text for today, and so I'm going to uh, start reading there. If you are able, 
Would you please stand to honor God as we read his word? Verses 1 through 4. So coming out of that context, Paul says to the Philippian church, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Verse 3, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Uh, let's pray. God, we... Um, we are so grateful that we have your word to look at and that you have um, preserved this throughout the, the generations to hand it down to us. And as we look at this letter that Paul, the Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippian church, God, I just pray that you would uh, open our hearts and our minds to, to understand and discern the truth here, to be able to uh, take this and apply it to life in a, in a way that makes sense and can, uh, can set the course for our coming week. And so as we look at this, teach us about humility and teach us about how to, uh, how to battle pride and the idols that we, that we set up in our hearts so that that stuff can be cleaned out of us. The Holy Spirit can come in and just do a cleansing of our hearts and fill us, God, with your glory in Jesus name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So um, chapter two, all of chapter two is um, about imitating Christ and and then Paul goes into chapter three and he starts telling um, some more detail about his own life and how that has changed things, how it's transformed his life. But it starts here where he says to them, um, he's, so he's, as he's building this case for unity and he's trying to encourage them in, to be united, he says, um, you know, if there's been any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any common sharing in the spirit, and any tenderness and compassion. And so that, um, that could be reworded in this way because the Philippian church had a lot of the stuff going well for them. So the, Paul could be saying to them, because there is encouragement in Christ within your body, because there's comfort from his love, because there's common sharing in the spirit, because there's tenderness and compassion among you, make my joy complete by being like-minded. So he's bringing back in the mindset, being like-minded, having the same love, so he's touching on the affections of the, of the Philippian church for, for one another and for Paul, being one in spirit and, and of one mind. And so Paul's encouraging them, that you've, got these, you've got these things that are going pretty well for your church, I want you to continue on, stay on that narrow path and continue on, but go deeper. So this is going well, let me encourage you, let me also challenge you, let's go deeper. And then Paul in verse 3, gives them this command that is so rich and is just so complex, even though it sounds so simple. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. 
rather in humility value others above yourselves. Um, so as we look at our first point here, Paul's trying to encourage unity in the church, and the thing that will divide a church probably faster than anything else is pride on the part of the members of the, of the body of Christ. Pride, so as we look at our first, verse, or first point, pride, we're going to look at how it is self-exalting, which that makes sense, but it also breeds division within the church. Now, if the Philippian church was already pretty unified in Christ, and they were already showing tenderness and compassion and love, and they had fellowship in the Spirit, then why would this be a necessary command for Paul to give them? If things are, you know, if things are going well, Paul wouldn't have written the same kind of letter to, to the church in Philippi that he wrote to the church in Corinth, the, in Corinth to the Corinthians, because that church was totally messed up. Philippi, there was love and compassion and Christ-like character, so why does Paul have to say to them, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit? Which, by the way, I don't know if you know if it, if it caught your attention, but this is the second time in this letter already that Paul has used the phrase selfish ambition. So why does he, why does he feel a need to warn them of this? And I think the answer to that is because we live in a fallen state and um, we are so prone to focusing on ourselves. We're so prone to making life about us, are we not? And so I want to break down these two things. He tells them to do nothing out of selfish ambition and he tells them to do nothing out of vain conceit. So let's look at selfish ambition first. If we're not supposed to do this, let's make sure we know what he's talking about. Selfish ambition is doing something for my own benefit, right? So um, I, I'll serve in the church because it'll make me look good, right? Um, I'll, I'll help someone who's in need because there might come a day when I need them to help me and they can repay the favor, right? Um, I'll serve on, I'll attend the church business meeting so I can make my wise counsel known because everybody needs to know what I'm thinking, right? Or I can have some control on what the church does. So selfish ambition is all about how can I make sure that I'm taken care of? How can I make sure that I get what I want? Um, basically, I'm looking out for number one, right? Which is totally opposite of anything that Christ ever did in his own life. It's totally opposite of what God commands us to do. And there are, Scripture is laced with, with verses where God talks about um, how we are to serve and those kinds of things. So I don't have time to run through an exhaustive list of them, but um, I, I want to pull Matthew 20, 16 out. And Jesus says the, exact, the same thing in a, in a separate context in Matthew 19. But in Matthew 20, 16, he says, He's, he's teaching, and he says the last will be first, and the first will be last. And so there are places where um, God, you know, whether it's a nation that's powerful but arrogant and, and uh, not, a, not somebody who's submitting to God, or it's a person who is trying to make themselves, uh, you know, get up to the top or, or 
get ahead of everybody or benefit themselves. God frequently says, I will bring you down. I will humble you. If, if you don't humble yourself, I will humble you f- for your own good. And so there are, it's all throughout Scripture, this concept. If you want to be first, then you have to make yourself last. If you want to be, uh, if you want to be considered great, you have to serve the others. So the, first, the last will be first and the first will be last. So Paul says, don't, don't be like that. Don't, don't, don't do anything out of selfish ambition to benefit yourself. And we, as we were talking in Sunday school, we were talking about how you, you place others above yourself, how you serve and you don't consider yourself to be um, better than them, but you actually consider their, their needs and their interests and the things that they, that they, um, that would be beneficial for them or would be good for their walk with Christ or their growth, you invest in them. That was one of the things we talked about, investing ourselves in others. And we're going to get into that a little bit later also. The second thing he says is do nothing out of vain conceit. Now, vain conceit, um, I think if we were to uh, analyze it, I think vain conceit would be something that would bring about an attitude of entitlement, right? I deserve this or I deserve that. And so um, I'm just using examples in the church because we can identify with them. But if you have a job that's in the business world or the education world or wherever your job might be, you would have this the, the same kind of, you could apply this there as well. Um, but let's just look at a church context. So it would be really easy to take on a mindset of, you know, I'm an elder in the church, so I deserve some recognition, right? Um, or I'm a pastor, uh, I'm pastoring the biggest church in town, I should have been the one asked to speak at the high school baccalaureate service, or I should have been the one that was asked to do something in the community. Um, or a church might have, a church as a whole might have a mindset of, you know, we have a more biblical approach to how we do church and how we do life and and those things than the church down the street. So I don't know if we should partner with them to reach out to the community and try to get the gospel out there. So vain conceit or like this entitlement uh, mindset is that I deserve something or I am better than, basically. If we were to boil it down at its root, it's I'm better than you or we're better than you. And Paul says, that's, there's no place for that in God's church. Um, and again, all kinds of scriptures that if we were to do a study on this, it would take us weeks or months to do a study on all the verses. Uh, I'm going to pull James 4, uh, 6. James is actually quoting Old Testament scripture as well. So this is not something that's just New Testament. It's something that's in the Old Testament as well. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so Paul has to warn the Philippians to guard against this stuff because he understands that sin, and especially pride, have taken up residencies in our lives. And I would argue even the life of the believer. Um, If you will turn with me to Romans chapter 7, Romans chapter 7, verse 15 is where we're going to start. 
This is Paul expounding on his own heart so that people can see. We can't, we can't see somebody's heart. And so, so often these things of pride or sin, we hide in our hearts because we are able to mask them from the public. But Paul is just trying to be real honest with the Roman church here. And so in, verse, in chapter 7, verse 15, he says this. He says, I, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. And so I want you to focus, like, make a note here of verse 17. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. And verse 20 um, no, 19 and 20. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the, evil, but the evil that I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So even, I mean, Paul's, Paul's a believer, right? Paul's been converted. He's probably more than anybody in history devoted his whole life to Christ and, and advancing the gospel. Not very many people have a closer relationship with Christ than the Apostle Paul. And he says, there's sin living in me. And so I think we could look at that and we could say even, and we could look at our own lives as well, even the regenerate believer has the root of sin in his life still and does battle against the desires of the flesh that remain in him every day. And so I want you to think about this. How difficult is our battle against sin if sin has been crushed and conquered on the cross and yet it still lives in us? Now, let me make sure I clarify. I don't want to, I don't want to communicate the wrong thing. I'm not saying that we're mastered by it and I'm not saying that it is um, um, in control of our lives and I'm not saying that... Um, Christ's work on the cross was insufficient in any way. Um, we are victorious if we're in Christ because he has already won the battle and we have a reward waiting for us if we belong to him. However, we still live and operate in a fallen world with a fallen body and even our mind and our emotions and our um, spirit in us we, we are still operating in this fallenness. And so while we are still in this, we are going to do battle because we have the Holy Spirit's indwelling, right? And we've been saved, but Satan doesn't give up and sin is not going to just back off and say, oh, you belong to Jesus, so I'm, I'm going to go work on someone else. Satan, um, Peter tells us that Satan is prowling around like a like a lion waiting to devour you as soon as he gets a moment he's going to try to devour you and so it is going to be a battle day in and day out so you are victorious 
Don't be, don't be discouraged. You are victorious, but you cannot, for a moment, let down your guard, which is why the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, guard your life and your doctrine closely, and if you do so, you will save yourself and your hearers. So, as we look at this first part of the command here in Philippians, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And Paul says there is that kind of behavior, that type of mindset that is not God-honoring, it's not Christ-exalting, it's not Holy Spirit-guided, and it has no place in God's church. Um, but then he says, here's what, you, here's what you should be like, picking up in verse 3, do, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but to each, but each of you to the interests of the others. So as we move into point number two, humility is, as opposed to pride, which is self-exalting, humility is Christ-exalting, and humility breeds the unity that Paul is trying to encourage the Philippian church to have. Humility is Christ-exalting and breeds unity in the church. So whereas the root of selfish ambition and vain conceit is pride, the root of looking out for others, which that is the literal translation of that, uh, look out for each other. Um, the word interests, like it says, uh, not looking, not to your own interests, but or not only to your own interest, depending on your translation, uh, but each of you to the interests of others. That word interest is not even in the Greek. Um, it is a literal look out for others. Um, so we kind of fill that in to add, you know, from the context, we kind of fill that in thinking that might be what the Apostle Paul was getting at, but the command is really straightforward. Like, it's not about you, it's about other people for, for your service is about other people as you serve Christ. You serve Christ by serving others and putting them above yourself. So this humility is what breeds um, unity in the church, and the root of this, um, the root of this command is a humble spirit. So what does it mean then, if we're supposed to be considering others better than ourselves, what does that mean? How do we, how do, we do that? So I think if we, if we are demonstrating this, if we are taking on a humble spirit, if the Holy Spirit helps us to humble ourselves, it's the hardest thing for us to do as human beings um, to not feed our pride, but to cultivate humility. Um, but if the Holy Spirit grants us the grace to do that, this, I think, is what it looks like then. It means that as you interact with the body of Christ, you count them worthy you count them worth the investment of your life in their life. You count them worth the investment of your life in their life. That is, and that's exactly what Christ did for us. Instead of the motivation of selfish ambition, which is looking out for myself, or vain conceit, which is an entitlement because I think I'm better and I deserve it, you're looking out for the best for everybody else in the church. And if you, and if you, so you, so you ask these kinds of questions. How, how can I invest my time in you? 
you know, um, how many people have had uh, either kids or they've had, uh, you know, people in the church who have needed your time and, and you're like, I, I wish I could spend time with you, but I got to do this. And, and that, I'm not saying that you, you shouldn't prioritize things because you have to keep commitments, you have responsibilities that you have to keep. But I was just convicted of this um, this week as I, as I was studying. Um, I feel like I've had to say no to my kids too often. You know, um, I've got things I got to get done. I've got to be somewhere. Or, um, and sometimes it comes down to just real selfishness. I just have something else I, wanna, I wanted to do. and I've been counting on this all day. And, and they want to do something. And I've just been convicted. Like, I have to say no sometimes. But I feel like, too many times I say no. Um, but it could be with any relationship. It could be with um, somebody you're discipling, or it could be with somebody in the church who's going through a really hard time and they need your time. And, um, and Paul is saying, he's not, he would never encourage you to not be responsible with the things that you are responsible for, but, or to back out of commitments. But Paul is saying, if you, if you have any time how do I invest my time in you? How do I give you my time so that you know how valued you are to me? Um, another question you could say is, how can I invest my resources in you? Am I, willing to, am I willing to take what God has given me freely and allow other people to use that freely? And as Americans, we struggle with that because, you know, we worked hard, we earned the money, we bought this, this is mine, Right? But God would say, I gave you the job. I gave you the work ethic. I allowed you to earn that much money. I allowed you to purchase this. Sometimes you need to let that be a resource for somebody in the church. Or, so how can I invest my resources in you? How can I invest the, the gifts that God has given me for the purpose of building up the body of Christ? How can I invest those in you? How can I invest my life in your life? And so, I think we would all be able to say, you know, I know God calls us to that, but it's a little easier to know it's supposed, that we're supposed to do that. Um, it's easier to, to know it than it is to actually carry through on some of those things. So how do we do that? How do we do that? And I think, I mean, there are lots of scriptures that we could look at that I think would encourage us and help us understand, but I think all we need to do is look at the Trinity. Because... Every person of the Trinity has done that for you and for everybody else in the body of Christ. So if we're thinking, okay, so Paul's calling us to put everybody in the body of Christ above ourselves. I'm supposed to be serving them. Well, you can look at God the Father and you could say, God the Father invested himself in those people as well. They're created in his image. We know that from Psalm 139. They belong to God and God loves them as dear children. So if God loves them, then I need to I need to serve them as well. I need to consider them worthy of my time, worthy of my uh, resources, worthy of my life investment in them. Christ has done the same thing. So the second person of the Trinity, Christ has invested himself in them. He came down. He let go of his glory in heaven. He let go of, um, he, he voluntarily gave up some of his divine powers while he was on this earth, living separate from his Father in heaven like physically separated from his father in heaven uh, in terms of being on the earth in human form. And he died for us. He shed his blood for us so that we would be able to be with him. 
and we're not getting into this today, but if we were to be covering the rest of uh, this section, 5 through 11, you read verses 6 through 8, he says, who, describing Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage or grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So Christ obviously has invested himself in every one of us. And so if he's invested himself in the, in the body of Christ, then I need to invest myself as a servant to the body of Christ to consider others better than myself and myself. And the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, has invested in them because he indwells in every believer. He daily counsels us. He grants wisdom and, and discernment to us. He empowers us, and he gives us gifts to serve the body of Christ. And so if, if the Trinity, if all three persons of the Trinity have specific ways that they've invested and, and ser served, I say, in terms of Jesus really served us by laying down his life, if every person in the Trinity has considered, you know, the body of Christ is God's children, um, worth, worth doing, leaving heaven and, and laying down your life, and we're made in his image, and the Holy Spirit indwells us and guides us and directs us, then I certainly need to be able to look at the body of Christ and say, you are worth my life. You're worth my time. You're worth my resources. You're worth the investment. And I want, and Paul wants to make sure that that is the, the, the atmosphere or the context in which people operate in the church. And so I, I would ask these questions as you are considering your own life. Um, is that how we approach people? Like just for yourself, think, think through your own interactions with the body of Christ. Is that how we approach people? Do we truly consider others better than ourselves or, do, or is our love conditional? You know, um, and we'd like to say our love is unconditional, but honestly, I, I think our love tends to be more conditional than what we think. Um, do we really consider the interests of others, or do we do so as long as they also, you know, repay the favor and consider our interests? Because Paul, Paul's encouragement, Paul's command to the church is do nothing for yourself. Do everything for the benefit and the blessing of the body. So, now here comes the hard part. Because it's easy to know, yeah, God doesn't want me to be prideful. God doesn't want me to do things for my own benefit. God wants me to do things for the benefit of the body of Christ. I should be serving other people. I should be a blessing to other people. Um, that's easy to know. But what's harder to know is what are the obstacles? What are the hurdles that might cause us to get injured as we're trying to <laughs> as we're trying to serve the body of Christ, because there are roadblocks, there are things that, that Satan puts in our path to try to prevent us from doing this, right? And, 
as we move into the third point, I want to consider the fact that we have we have idols that we set up in our hearts that tend to control how we respond to circumstances, how we respond to people. Um, and those are things that I think bring about division in the church. Um, and so our third point, identifying the idols in our hearts that feed pride and suppress humility. Identifying the idols in our hearts that feed our pride and suppress an attitude of humility. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. He doesn't say the heart is one of the most deceitful things. He says the heart is deceitful above all things, and there's no fix for it. There's no medicine that'll fix it. There's nothing we can do for it. Um, you, many of you might know John Calvin has been um, quoted as saying, man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. Um, and also that he's also said, the mind begets, begets an idol and the hand gives it birth. So it's this image of our hearts just cranking out idols. And, and we, might, we might get rid of one, but the moment we get rid of one, there's another one coming out. You know, and so our, our hearts are idle factories. Um, have any of you ever read this book? It's called Gospel Treason by a guy named Brad Bigney. Um, the subtitle is Betraying the Gospel with Hidden Idols. Um, this would be worth the... I don't see a price on it. It would be well worth the purchase. We'll say that. Um, this has been life-changing for me as well. Um, I, this was a textbook of mine in seminary, and I had to read it quickly because, you know, seminaries are notorious for giving you more reading than you can get through in a lifetime, and you have to do it in 16 weeks. So I had to read this really quickly. Um, I'm actually working through it again so I can take some time and do some more processing of it. But this book is... Um, it was life-changing for me. The concept of the book is that we set up idols in our hearts, and most of the time we don't even know they're there. Um, and those idols are the motivating factor for our actions and our responses to people and circumstances. And I'll just give you a couple of places where he addresses it before we begin to really kind of address ourselves. Um, he was, in one, one place he was speaking of a woman who um, her... She was basically, her whole life was about how do I please my husband? Um, not in a good way. Like it wasn't just serving her husband. It was he has become like number one in my life. And so he says, Brad Bidney says in the book, speaking of her, nobody wakes up one day and says, I'm going to start living for the approval and the affection of my husband. And you could put anything, you fill that blank in with anything. Nobody, we don't just wake up one day and say, you know what, I'm going to... I'm going to invest my entire life in this activity, or I'm going to invest my entire life in this person, or I'm going to invest my entire life in no activity and be lazy and, and just enjoy life. Um, we don't do that. We don't wake up and make that declaration. 
what happens most of the time is we don't even know that that has become an idol in our life, but somehow we've been sucked into idol worship. And that thing that is the most important thing in our life becomes the thing that motivates us for whatever we do. And here's where it fits into what we're talking about today, because this kind of stuff is what threatens the unity of the body. Because the moment your idol is threatened, the moment something, the moment something be, um, is about to expose it, or the moment somebody gets in the way of you being able to have what you what you worship in your heart, what you want, and is the most important thing in your life then you begin to respond in a way that is not Christ-like, not biblically justified, because you're not serving God, you're serving whatever it is that you've made number one and put on the throne of your heart. And that brings division. If somebody in the body of Christ, if I have an idol in my heart, and somebody in the body of Christ does something that's going to prevent me from being able to serve that, I am probably not going to respond well. I'm probably going to respond in a way that is dishonoring to Christ and breaks relationship or breaks up the unity of the body of Christ. And, and we've seen churches do this. You'll, you'll, I'm sure you've all either seen it, heard about it, maybe been a part of a church, but you've seen churches that are basically split right down the middle. Something caused an issue, and people gathered or rallied people to their side, and you have people who believe this on the issue, and you have people who believe this on the issue, and there is, there's absolutely no way we're going to be reconciled on this apart from God's miraculous hand at work in, in the life of the church. So our idols are the things that cause so many issues in our life, and they bring division in the body of Christ. So, in the body of Christ, where does, I'm not saying the idols, I'm saying um, when, we, when we have disunity or we have tension or we have um, fighting in the body of Christ, what causes that? It, I, I don't mean the idols, I mean, like, let's look at some, some things that we could put our hands on. James 4, 1 through 3. Will you turn there with me? James 4, 1 to 3. This is something a little more tangible. It's something we can identify a little bit. We can identify, here's the issue. Um, but James is saying the same thing that Brad Bigney is saying in Gospel Treason. James 4, 1 to 3, James says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have. So there's something you want, and you don't get it. So you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, catch this, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. James isn't saying anything different there. This book is basically saying the same thing. I, I don't know if he based it on this verse or this text, but... It goes hand in hand. We want something, we don't get it, but because we've made it an idol in our heart, we fight and we quarrel. Um, I hope none of you kill, um, but that's what James says. You covet, but you can't get. And, and 
even when, even when you ask, you ask with the wrong motives, and so you don't receive. You ask, your motives are me, me, me. So whenever an idol in our heart is threatened, we tend to respond in an unbiblical and unchristlike manner. And so here's how this book has helped me. Brad Bigney, he's got a longer list of questions that kind of help you identify it a little bit more. But he gives you three main questions to ask yourself when you realize that you are getting... When you, when you begin, when the Holy Spirit begins to convict you that maybe something is more important than it should be in your life or more important than God in your life, um, here are some questions you can ask yourself to really identify those idols. Am I willing to sin to get this? Am I willing to sin in order to get it? And who knows what that sin could look like? Am I willing to break relationships with somebody in order to get this? Am I willing to do something... Um, illegal in order to get this? Am I willing to do something that breaks God's law in order to get this? So it could be, it could manifest itself in lots of ways, but am I willing to sin to get this? Second question, am I willing to sin if I think I'm going to lose it? Is it so important in your life and it's threatened and you think you might lose it and, and then am I willing to react in a way that is, that is completely opposite of God's character? Am I willing to sin if I think I'm going to lose it? And then the third question is, do I turn to this thing as a refuge and a comfort instead of going to God for those things? So I would encourage you to take those questions with you daily and just ask the Lord to reveal any hidden idols in your heart. Because one, he wants to rid you of them, but two, it is a threat to the church. We know God's will is for the church to be united. So if we have something in our hearts that could be a threat to that, then we know that that is a dangerous thing and God is ready to cleanse you of that if you would just confess it and let him do the necessary work. But it's also important, not just because of the unity of the church, it's also important because of what we read in Colossians chapter 3. And I'm going to close with this. Colossians 3 says, this is 5 and 6, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Verse 6, because of these, so idolatry is in that list, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. And so it's dangerous for the church. It's dangerous for you as an individual because if you don't, if God, if you don't ask God to expose them, acknowledge them, let him f- have freedom to cleanse you and remove it from your life, then there's division that will come out of it and God's wrath will come upon those who worship idols. And so that's my prayer for you. I'm going to pray right now, but that's my prayer for you this week, that God would help you identify something that maybe you don't even know is there, but is hindering intimacy with him and intimacy within the body of Christ. Let's pray. God, we, um, 
we know that we operate in a fallen world and we know that because of that we um we we love ourselves and we like to be number one we like to be the best at everything we like to be recognized by people like the pharisees we love to have people look at us and think man how how spiritual that person is or man that guy has the has a walk with Christ unlike anything I've ever seen. That kind of stuff feeds our ego and our pride, and we love that. And that's not a, those aren't bad things. It's not a bad thing to, to have a good relationship with you and a, and a healthy walk with you. That's, a, that's what life is about. It's not a bad thing to, to want to be a person who walks with you in faithfulness and, and demonstrates holiness. It's not a bad thing to want to be a good parent or to be um, a good shepherd of the people of the church. Uh, it's not a bad thing to want to be healthy as a church and have healthy doctrine and be a shining light in the community that's dark. Those are all great things, but anything that we could desire, even those things that are good, can become an idol if that becomes more important than serving you and worshiping you and making you number one. And so I just pray that whatever idols we have in our hearts, known or unknown to us, would you this week just reveal those to us? Um, shine your light of truth in the darkness of our hearts and then take that sin, those idols we've set up, the pride in our hearts, and just rip it up by the roots and cleanse us and when we set up more, reveal those to us and come in and rip them up by the roots and cleanse us and make us more like you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.